In this episode, we'll be talking about alternatives to urgent and emergency care pathways, uh, with a particular focus on the urgent and emergency care system as a whole. I'm pleased to say I'm joined by uh, Brendan Lloyd and Andy Swinburne. Uh, Perhaps, Brendan, if you could uh, kick off by introducing yourself. Yes, thanks, Andy. I'm Brendan Lloyd. I'm the Medical Director for Welsh Ambulance Services Trust. I originally started my clinical work as a general practitioner, carried out a couple of medical director jobs within Wales and started with the ambulance service in 2014. And I've joined the CQC earlier this year as a National Professional Advisor for Ambulance Services. Excellent. Thanks, Brendan. Uh, and perhaps over to you, Andy, to do the same. Just to confuse listeners, uh, so I'm Andy Swinburne. Or, uh, I'm Director of Paramedicine here at the Welsh Ambulance Service. I've been working with Brendan for nearly six years now in terms of progressing the clinical agenda through the Welsh Ambulance Service. Excellent. Thanks, Andy. So let's kick off then. So first off, uh, if we could uh, just talk about how we direct people away from the urgent and emergency care uh, to a service that best suits their needs. So thinking about the pathway and alternatives, really. So what's working well, what isn't working so well to reduce avoidable and hospital admissions and direct people to the right service to best meet their needs. So, Brendan, perhaps we could go to you first. Yes, thanks. So I think when we're talking about, you know, trying to convey as few people inappropriately as possible to ED, I think that it's the alternatives that are available. And I think those can be split into what are being provided for the ambulance service and what the ambulance service can provide itself. So I think that in terms of the the way that things are going with the ED uh, avoidance, there are some considerable effective projects. And I'm thinking here of things like the ESDEX, the same day emergency care. That's been very useful. Unfortunately, still a little bit of variation and still some variation in what they accept and uh, the direct referral from the ambulance service. And I think that that is absolutely crucial. It's how easy is it for very busy paramedics with jobs piling up to be able to divert patients into the alternatives? What we don't want is a position where the easiest option is, oh, well, we'll just take them to ED because we know that with the queues outside ED at the moment, uh, that is going to be disastrous for the system. We also know that there are categories of patients, and I'm thinking particularly frail elderly patients, patients with uh, mental health problems, where going to a very busy, crowded ED is actually the worst thing for them. We know that too many patients end up at ED. They end up being admitted when possibly they could have been assessed better in the community or assessed and discharged. They end up with long lengths of stay and uh, they become vulnerable to inter-hospital infections and complications. And then the chances of them returning to their place of residence uh, are significantly reduced. So just looking at the main categories of calls that we have, rapid assessments for things like chest pain, breathing disorders, falls, mental health, all of those things, absolutely critical. One of the other big areas that we have found is the patients that contact us that I would say if the system was working perfectly and capacity wasn't an issue would probably have been managed through primary care either their own GP or primary care urgent centres 
And so I think the ability to refer patients back into the appropriate pathway when they have called 999, possibly because they feel there is no other alternative, is going to be absolutely key. But I think that the other component to this is what can we do as an ambulance service working to the maximum of our clinical effectiveness and this is probably uh, where Andy might uh, have something to say because Andy has been instrumental in driving forward that clinical transformation within our ambulance service. Thanks, thanks, Brendan. So yeah, over to you, Andy. Perhaps for listen. Yeah, thanks, Brendan. And obviously, I'd wholly endorsed pretty much everything that Brendan said there. And I think we can take a step back in respect in respect of of this regard and, and we've known this challenge has been coming down the tracks for a number of years now COVID's accelerated it i think if you talk to any public health professional they'll tell you the the challenge that we have with an urgent unscheduled care is it, it's not something that's crept up on us uh, it, it's been coming down the tracks for, for quite a while and i think what we're at a stage now where we have to be fundamentally different in the way we respond to patients presenting through the urgent and unscheduled care system and simply doing what we've always done isn't going to work anymore and the, and the reality for me has to be that we need to we need to start to look at those patients that present through the 999 system. How are we going to best serve their needs? Because by and large, the majority of those do not benefit from a transport to the to the emergency department. And so, the more we can manage those people away from the front door of ED, and the more we can manage them in the community, uh, the better it will be for patient outcomes, but also the the, the more uh, efficient we will be as a system. Uh, in terms of, of giving patients what they need in a timely manner, most cost effective and most clinically effective as well. And, and so uh, mentioned at the start of the question, Andy, uh, around the, the use of alternative pathways. Now, my experience, you know, having worked in three ambulance services alongside different partners across the health economy, both in England and in Wales, where I see where systems work well is where there's a uniformity of provision, where there's consistently the same kind of provision for as many hours as, as is physically possible. You know, people present through the 999 system with urgent and unscheduled care needs 24 7. Uh, but you tend to see a lot of those urgent pathways only available, you know, in working hours and things like that. So that immediately uh, limits our ability to, to make use of those. Likewise, uh, when you start to get vary from geographical area and different criteria of how we can uh, uh, get people into those alternatives, again, we then start to see limited uptake and, and, and a difficulty in, in, in being able to refer into that. But I suppose there's a, there's a larger picture I want us to, uh, to, to look at as well in respect of ED avoidance pathways, i.e. we send an ambulance to then refer to another part of the health economy in itself puts in an inefficiency. And, and so ideally what we need is to be able to target as calls coming through the 999 system. If an ambulance response isn't appropriate, then let's let's have that pathway at that stage, at the call taking stage, before we send an ambulance to then redirect somewhere else. And I think the use of clinical data can really help us inform that decision as to how can we steer patients through the system to different parts of the health economy. So that's one point I think that both commissioners and providers need to start to give serious thought to. But as Brendan kind of touched upon towards the end of his answer as well, uh, I think there's a role for the ambulance service here in, in, in stepping into that space and, and not just being that traditional ambulance role. So historically, ambulance services have been a people logistics organisations that have been responsible for moving people from A to B. 
Now, as, as times progressed, uh, ambulance services clinical offering has increased and become uh, increasingly more uh, adept at, at, at managing patients, both in with critical and urgent care needs, but also in, into that urgent and unscheduled care needs space. And I think there's a lot further we can go in, re in regard to that and starting to think, well, if we can identify those patients through that clinical data, that don't benefit from a transport to the emergency department, that don't need conveying, that could be managed in the community, if a pathway was available, then potentially is there a, is, is there a role for the ambulance service to be commissioned to deliver that? Because what we have is uh, uh, the ability to grow a, a very adept workforce in paramedics who are very keen to get into this space and start to say, well, if we take the frail elderly as, a, as an instance, as, a, as a, a growing population that will have multiple complex comorbidities that will have uh, real broad and distinct and challenging care needs who we know rarely benefit from hospital admission they're actually uh, i mean we've in wales we've an abundance of evidence now that our, our advanced paramedics with their yeah, an enhanced uh, skill set uh, and enhanced education often with uh, prescribing abilities can really step into that space and supplement the provision in primary care with uh, a fairly compelling offering that us as an ambulance service can offer to, to patients without the need to move patients into other parts of the health economy where we can step into that space, deliver the care that's required for the patient. Obviously, Involving primary care within that discussion, uh, you know, oh, doctor, I've just been out to see one of your patients. I have done this, this and this. I may suggest you need to follow up in X amount of days to see how she's going on with X, Y and Z. Not necessarily that referral to primary care, because we know primary care is in itself challenged in, in terms of its activity, but supplementing that provision. And these aren't new patients that the ambulance service is receiving. We're not out there necessarily touting for business with plenty of calls coming through the 999 system. It's about looking at those calls and saying, actually, for a large uh, proportion of those, conveyance in the back of an ambulance to the emergency department isn't the best thing for the patient and could be done much more cost effectively and much more clinically effectively if we were to uh, provide a different response to the ones that we've been traditionally used to offering. Yeah, thanks, Andy. I, I'm a, there's a part of this to me that says, you know, how do we join those services up? You know, thinking of the nine mm -hmm. service and the one one service, you know, think about how that how the offer joins up to, you know, not only general practice and primary care, but into community pharmacy and and all the other kind of uh, ways and the pathways that we can use for patients to get the right right treatment at the right time, really. So, and we will explore a little bit more about that moving forward, hopefully, in some of the questions. But staying on the issues and the opportunities discussed, perhaps we could say with you, Andy, initially for this. So staying on those issues, opportunities to discuss what, what, what sexual support do you think you need, is needed to better manage the pressure and cope with the increasing demands across the services, the UEC services? Okay, how long have we got on the respect to that one? Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a really broad question, yeah. that one, Andrew. But it's, I'll, I'll try and be fairly targeted with my answer and, and maybe pick somewhere I class as some of the, the big hitters. Uh, and it does kind of flow on from a previous answer, really. And, and uh, when you look at traditionally what, what we we commission our ambulance services to provide, the, the large focus is around speed of response, about getting a, 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 an ambulance resource from A to B within a set time. And, and whilst for a certain category of patients, that time of response is, you know, imminently uh, vital that we can we can do that. For the majority of patients, then, you know, if we respond in eight minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 30 minutes even, then actually the outcome probably won't differ. And I think that's where back to that clinical data again is to sort of say, how, can, how about we commission our ambulance services to provide different response than just an ambulance? 
how do we, how do we commission our ambulance service to step into that urgent and unscheduled scare space and, and maybe de-emphasize the time-based targets where time is not necessarily that critical nature obviously i'm not suggesting we do a next day response but what i'm saying is is for that patient that presents with copd with an exacerbation of copd if we respond in 10 minutes or if we respond in 15 minutes if we respond in 20 minutes the outcome will be no different so why do we focus on time being the principal driver of how we commission the ambulance service to respond when actually what we might say is well do you know the, the optimum outcome for that patient is we have if they don't have their own uh, uh, medicines there to, to call upon they're actually that we had we had to do a medicines review they do a full workup in terms of the kind of care they would get if they were presenting in primary care or to a, a respiratory specialist uh, 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 a community respiratory team as a for instance and from that basis we can then start to say well actually the clinical outcome might be the thing we need to commission to deliver upon not necessarily how fast we get from A to B. And that for me would be a real fundamental change in how we look at our ambulance services to, to move away from just being, as I said, that principally commissioned as a logistics organisation that just speeds to certain categories of patients. So actually, so for the patients that need a timely response, definitely let's get there really quick. But for the patients that actually need something different, where time is less of a priority compared, then actually let's look to commission those on clinical outcome measures as opposed to responding just basically on how fast can we get something from A to B irrespective of whether the something delivers the best care for that patient. Yeah sure thanks and then we'll certainly go on to in a moment if you don't mind the, the role of the advanced uh, paramedic in, in, in that system and how you see that developing but I think we all agree you know certainly those patients who are critically unwell those patients who need that ambulance now uh, you know all of our jobs is to get the patient uh, get the ambulance to that patient as quickly as we can and all the way that we think about all those patients where it's not so time critical will enable that response so much better anyway won't it so so absolutely Brendan anything anything you want to add? Yeah, I think you know, just going back to the question of the ED conveyance, you know, why we why we should be conveying um, as few patients as possible when it's clinically appropriate. Of course, we know that the EDs themselves now are under immense pressure, overcrowding in EDs being reported widely across the uh, the country. We've got problems with the hospitals being full, uh, inability to discharge back into the community, and. From the AA's data, we know that uh, you know 85% of the patients who would hand over delays of more than an hour suffered some degree of harm, which if we extrapolated that over the year, you'd have 160,000 patients potentially experiencing harm per year, and 12,000 of those would be experiencing severe harm. So the importance of getting that flow is, is absolutely crucial, and of course that will enable us uh, when we don't have ambulances queuing up outside the ED to get ambulances to those patients where we know that the time is absolutely critical. So those would be our STEMI patients, our st stroke patients, where we know there is a, uh, a therapeutic window to get an urgent intervention in place. And at the moment, uh, it's very difficult for ambulance services to meet those targets and provide the best service to the patients because we are losing 20, 25% of our entire resource due to handover delays at overcrowded EDs. So absolutely crucial that we do uh, as much as we can as an ambulance service to keep patients in the community, provide the treatment, uh, close the cases where possible, or provide the best handover 
uh, and very often that will be into a community service back to primary care direct to a secondary care service rather than joining the back of a queue at ED. Yeah, thanks, Brendan. And, and we're, uh, we're we're involved with the, the NHS Winter Collaborative event, which is exactly that, that target on actually how do we reduce those ambulance delays once those patients are at hospital. And I think, we've, I think you've both been really clear on, you know, what can we do to, to prevent in some ways those patients arriving at A&D in the first place. But there's also that chunk of work to say, look, actually, what do we do when they're there and how do we clear those ambulances as a way to go and respond uh, as we all want them want them to do, and and we're very much involved in that, and we want to support that through support that innovation through the winter uh, as much as we can. Whilst we all, you know, we've all got the same aspiration of providing safe care. Now, nobody, nobody, you know, there are standards below which I think we all agree that nobody and no nobody nowhere should we drop. So good, thank you. So can I just touch on just to close the the, the role of the advanced uh, paramedic? I know Andy, you spoke about it in a, a previous answer, but I'd just be interested in sort of delving into that a little bit more with you in particular how do you think they can the role of a, an advanced paramedic practitioner how can that improve system working across the, the pathway so i can give you some of the examples we have over here in wales so do, so just to be clear because the, the term practice paramedic or advanced paramedic practitioner tends to be used a little bit interchangeably so if i describe what ours are in wales so Essentially, the, the skill set of our advanced paramedics uh, over here in Wales aligns to the College of Paramedics career framework. So they are all master educated uh, and in growing proportion of those uh, uh, are also uh, independent prescribers as well. And so these are our experienced paramedics with somewhere in the region of you know at least five years uh, 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 post registration experience the majority of them many many more years experience where possible we're trying to have them working in rotational models so they spend a proportion of their time working within primary care and a proportion of their time working with us in west and we've seen real benefits both in terms of providing resilience to primary care uh, because they have now have you know some quite adept clinicians that can work there uh, supporting primary care services which in turn reduces course through to 999 but also the skill set that they pick up working within primary care they then bring back to us in, in, in the ambulance service uh, uh, which enables them to to be even more effective than they are working uh, uh, as, as solo clinicians responding to patients presenting through 999. So uh, their principal targeted aim is, is the management of, of patients away from the front door of ED, albeit about 10% of their uh, calls they attend are high acuity, what we call red calls or CAT1 in England calls, uh, uh, because simply uh, uh, they, they, uh, they are, you know, these are experienced paramedics and if we have a critical incident in, in their vicinity, we will task them to attend that. Not while working primary care, when they do that part of the rotation, we, we you know, we have no control over their activity there. They hand it over uh, completely to primary care. But when they work for us, they work on a response car, principally uh, managing patients out of hospital. But also, uh, if, if they are the nearest resource, we'll, uh, we'll be tasked to, uh, to attend a red call as well. Uh, and what we've seen in their activity, whilst we have a principal set of jobs that we try and task them to, th there is uh, some fluidity within the, the dispatch criteria that we can send them to pretty much anything. And we see right across the board in all kind of categories of patients that respond to their conveyance rate is 20, 30, 40 percent less than than the, the conventional ambulance response. And, and so uh, because of that, we can see uh, the real potential of protect, you know, the top three core categories that we see, which are breathing difficulties, chest pains and falls. 
And that's where we see the, the 30 and 40 percent conveyance reduction when we send an advanced paramedic as opposed to a conventional ambulance response. And so if you think in Wales, we have somewhere in the region of 600,000 patients a year coming through the door. So if you're seeing 20 to 30 to 40 percent less conveyance when we send an advanced paramedic, that really paints a picture of well, actually 20, 30, 40 percent of the 600,000 patients we see. That's potentially a dramatic reduction in, in the number of patients arriving at the front door of ED. If we can industrialise the model of growing our advanced paramedics and having a whole process to get those people through. It's quite a costly venture. Uh, these people are either a band seven or an eight tier when they're in post. So they are the cheap clinician. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, plus they, you've obviously got the investment in the master's education uh, and it's not a quick fix. So, you you know, if, if someone was to say, Andy, can you go out and knit me a hundred advanced paramedics? Uh, it's going to take me at best 12 months if I can abstract them and put them on a full time course. If they're on a part time course, it's going to take three years. So. It has to be a long-term project, but I think, you know, this is the this is the question now for uh, back to that that commissioning element of let's seriously look at this because we can't manage the activity we've got now through the conventional means which we address now. Now, now, we have to do fundamental structural differences in the way we look to respond as an ambulance service, and that's where I think we have that long-term ambition to start to grow the numbers. Uh, uh, of our advanced paramedic practitioners and uh, so we have a much uh, uh, greater ability to send these uh, really adept clinicians to those patients to manage as many as they can uh, uh, without the need for either an alternative pathway or, or if they do uh, limiting the impact on the other parts of the health economy and, and I say we've an abundance of evidence of how that's worked uh, in, in you know in, in significant numbers now with the over nearly 70,000 patient episodes that they've attended in the last few years where we can see the difference in in uh, in, in attendance, uh, sorry, in, in conveyance to the, to the emergency department. And what we also notice as well is that in terms of the recall rate, so we monitor recall rate of all our clinicians that attend patients just on a patient safety measure to make sure that if we are leaving people at home, we don't end up being back there for a cardiac arrest 48 hours later or something like this. And their recall rate is no different uh, uh, as an advanced paramedic as it is to a conventional resource, even though they are managing many, many more patients in the community. So we have a great deal of confidence that the patient likes it because nobody really wants to go to hospital if they can manage their home. We do have very little pushback from other parts of the health economy in terms of uh, from uh, the advanced paramedics because they're tending to do more of the managing without the need for alternative pathways. And obviously, the fewer patients that arrive at the front door of ED, the more ambulance availability it gives for us to be able to then go out and start to respond. So we've got a long way to travel on this, but I think we, you know, we have a clear roadmap as to how we we want to get there. Sure, thanks. I'm sorry to go to, to Brendan in a moment to close that, but so I guess it's just a supplementary question. Maybe Brendan, you can answer it. Um, is that would you say there's a direct correlation then between the enhanced education? stroke enhanced confidence that enhanced education brings with it and their ability to leave people at home. Is that what we're, is that what we're saying? Yes, I think that that has been clearly demonstrated from uh, data that we've collected. And just going back to Andy's point, the, the reason that we have our senior clinicians educated to master's level, uh, particularly when we're looking at primary care, is that when we mapped the skills and the qualifications against documents produced by um, RCGP in the College of Paramedicine, 
it was very clear that the advanced healthcare master's qualification was the qualification that met those criteria. So that has given us the confidence then to step up our rotational model into primary care. So uh, we've been able to retain the uh, contract of these APPs, but rotate them into primary care settings. So we have APPs working in day-to-day GP surgeries. We also have them uh, supporting the GP out-of-hours service in some parts of Wales. And these posts have been very keenly sought after. They've significantly contributed to both recruitment and also to retention. I think particularly at the moment where you know there's a degree of frustration where people are working uh, for the ambulance service and they maybe do one or possibly two jobs and spend the rest of the time queuing up outside ED looking after quite sick patients. Being able to rotate in that clinical setting has been important for the the APPs. The the other factor I would say is that if you just have the advanced paramedic practitioners, but don't put a supporting clinical leadership structure within the organisation, then you're not going to get the maximum benefit. We've been fortunate, and I know other ambulance services uh, have been in the same position, that the boards have supported the investment in uh, clinical leadership structures. And this has been a, a crucial difference to the way that we've been able to manage uh, and will become even more important given the numbers of patients that we can foresee coming through in the future. Brendan, thank you. Uh, and a good point to close on. Some fascinating insights from both of you there, especially around these alternative pathways. Uh, I think we're all very keen to to explore. Uh, certainly some, some things we can do in the short term uh, and some things that we should invest in potentially for the longer term to give that that, that benefit. But um, certainly a lot of work I think we all need to do to improve uh, patient flow across the system. Uh, and, and of course, working together is going to be uh, crucial uh, to doing that. So thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, and don't forget to subscribe to the CQC Connect uh, whenever you get to your podcasts and look out for another episode coming soon. Thank you.